For today's Moots Community Podcast, I'm delighted to talk with Shane Claiborne, pioneer, new monastic, author and international speaker. Shane's first book, The Irresistible Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical, has envisioned a great number of us who live around the world exploring new monasticism as a credible ecclesial community for the modern world and the calling on Christians to love and serve the poor and needy in a committed and inclusive way. So Shane, welcome and thanks for taking the time out to talk with us. Yeah, it's great to have this conversation, and I, I'm, every time I come over there, I'm just so uh, uh, inspired by the things happening and the beautiful things stirring up over there. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, Shane. So, right, straight into these kind of questions that some of us have got about new monasticism, we're really interested to hear your perspective on a few things. So for you, Fantastic. Shane, oh, thanks. So for you, Shane, what is your understanding of the purpose of the kind of growing movement of ordinary radicals living in community all around the world now? And what is this kind of new movement on new monasticism really focused on for you? Well, I, th- I think what's exciting is is that there is, without a doubt, uh, uh, a growing number of Christians who see our faith not just as a ticket to heaven and an excuse to ignore the hells of the world around us, but re- but really that our faith has to engage the world that we're living in, and that Christianity is not, not just about what we believe, but is about how we live and how we, we uh, uh, interact with the brokenness of the world that we live in, you know, and, and so God's kingdom is... is uh, not just something we go up to when we die, but something we bring on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, I, I think that that really has has been um, resonating in people and, and something that the Spirit's doing. And it's nothing new, you know. I think that in, in a lot of ways we're just recovering from um, the, the very shallow evangelicalism that many of us have, have, have seen marking the, much of the church. And, and I mean, you, you guys over in Europe, I mean, there's a lot of other problems, you know, I think with the... Um, post-Christian world and the, you know, the, the, some of the engaging of the powers and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the questions that are, that are happening are not the same everywhere. But what's exciting, I think, is this, this idea of uh, that our, our Christianity needs to be able to articulate some of the marks of what it means to be Christian. And, and that, that's what I think monasticism has done. Um, is that you can see orthodoxy and orthopraxis really kiss and, 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 and take shape together so that we can say, this is what I believe in a Christian, and this is the way that uh, that works itself out. You know? and, and at its best, I think Christi- Christians have been able to say, if you want to know what I believe, then watch how I live. <laughs> you know, but really, over the past few decades, we've had less and less to show of our faith other than just our words. Mm. So for you, do you? I'm just thinking of how what you're saying resonates with what Phyllis Tickle's been writing about, about there being a crisis roughly every 500 years in the church, and it seems to be some form of new, some form of monasticism of living out a praxis that helps the church shift from one cultural form to another. Do you think that's what's going on now? Without a doubt, and I don't think that that folks uh, set out to start religious orders. You know, I mean, St. Francis, um, the the religious uh, order of the Franciscans was like his nightmare, actually. (laughs) You know, like, he, he, he set out to follow Jesus, and he set out to, to, to live his faith and to take the gospel seriously. Uh, And there's something magnetic and something contagious about that. Um, so, you know, as that spread, 
it, it became what it is today. Today, with all of its contradictions, you know, I was just talking to a Franciscan priest the other day that said, uh, "I said, what's that pocket for in his habit?" And he said, "That's for our cell phones." And I, <laughs> oh man, Francis is flipping in his grave. You know, uh, the Franciscans have built into their their uh, habit a, a cell phone pocket. Um, but you know, I, but I think that like it, it's not. But but that's why we need continual reformations uh, and. and and monastic movements um, in those times, like in Assisi, Italy, where we feel our Christianity has become infected by the materialism and the militarism, the individualism, you know, all the stuff of the society around us that we've forgotten what it means to be Christian. Uh, and folks go to the desert, they go to the margins and rethink that. And, of course, for St. Francis, you know, that, that was this gentle hiss, whisper from God that said, repair my church, which is in ruins. Uh, and, and he took that call very seriously, and I think that same whisper to repair the church, which is in ruins, is a whisper many people are feeling today. So your interpretation of this, what I think is right, is this kind of an ancient future aspect to this? It's kind of drawing on the ancient tradition in the contemporary. So, you, you know, you mentioned Francis, and I know lots of people are into Teresa of Avila and things like that. So that whole thing, that kind of long-term history is important to you? Yeah, and, and uh, uh, part of what I think we, we have is uh, a little bit of amnesia about church history where we, we really forget our own story and we think that we're doing something brand new. And it's it's really important, even if it is fresh, and I think there are fresh expressions of monasticism, and, and, and in many ways it's the spirit of monasticism that's inspiring many of us and not necessarily the particular forms of it. I mean, yeah. we've got a, 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 a plenty of people in our communities that, um, are married, uh, and, and other, other, uh, you know, we don't necessarily take a vow of poverty, but we say, so, uh, to love our neighbor as ourself demands a life of simplicity of us, but that doesn't necessarily, it's not a mimicking of those, those traditional vows, but I think we, we, what we can see is that those vows of, uh, of poverty and, and, and chastity and obedience, stability, those things have so much to teach us uh, in, in the world that we're living in and, and, and in a world where we've only had doctrines, you know, um, and, and doctrines are hard things to love. You know, I think that, that we don't need to throw out our belief, uh, and there is a lot of sloppy theology out there, but, but really our great challenge is not just right believing, but right living. So we need to look back in order to look forward, and, and we need to find those um, heroes and sheroes of our church, you know, and, and the, the movements of church history uh, that can inform how we interact with the world we live in today. Yeah. Very true. This, the, that whole focus on kind of what, the way we live, I think, is a, is a really important theme. But, but people, I think, are really struggling with the practicalities, and I'd be really interested to ask you about your experience in Philadelphia. For example, you know, the real challenge of living with people with profound mental health problems who can be aggressive and violent, and then living with people with drug addiction, which seem to compulsory steal sometimes. The practicalities of living that way really cost. So how have you made that work and still maintain some sort of community for you in Philadelphia? Yeah, it it is tricky, and I I think that that part of what we have to do is we have to surround ourselves with really good elders and really good um, communities that have been around for a while. And, and you know, there's there's um, lots of those. The Catholic Worker mo Movement. Uh, you know, Iona Northumbria over there. Uh, all kinds of movements of communities in the states here and all over the world. So we need to like 
pick their brains a little bit. You know, um, folks like John Vanier and, and Henry Nowen have been living, uh, you know, with folks with different disabilities. I mean, for for years and years, and they've learned a lot from those things. So um, some of those people have passed on, and some are still here. But I think the charism and the spirit of their communities can help us a lot. Um, yeah, in our, our neighborhood, we've we, we visited a ton of communities. In fact, our community would go every year on retreat, and we would uh, ask different communities to host us so that we could learn from their own history and, and learn from what they had already done and the mistakes that they had made and things like that. Um, mm. And and uh, uh, so we we try to um, uh, not just lose our ourselves in a big vision, but but really the Mother Teresa's line that we can do no great things, but only small things with great love yes. has really been a part of our spirit here. And so we don't do tons of big programs, but we have a few kids that show up and, and do homework after school. We have meals with folks uh, that many of them have lived on the streets and things like that. But I think like the personalism and the smallness of that is what allows us to sustain it for the future. And if you look like at, at communities like Larsh and uh, in those, those communities that have been around a while, they most of them have really stayed true to doing small things with great love, you know, and, yes. and taking care of one person well rather than um, 100 people sort of well, you know. Okay. Um, and, 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 yeah, so I, I think there's, there's a lot to learn from that. Um, and we, we've made tons of mistakes, and I think most Christians, like, we, we, we live too much in fear of failing, and we, 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 we sort of fail forward. So you don't let the failure stop you, but we do have to keep, keep learning from those, but not be scared to be taken advantage of or to make a mistake. I mean, we, we've got so many terrible stories. I don't necessarily tell all those in the books uh, because yes. they, they don't sell books. No. But, you know, like, we, we've had people overdose in our houses. We've had... Um, you know, encounters that have been really, really difficult with violent people. Um, so, so those, the, you know, you don't want to sugarcoat that. But, uh, but we, we, we've learned as we, we come along. And I think that is the, the genius of community is when you in, in, encounter a problem, you have a dozen other people that are helping you solve it. Okay. And those sort of practicalities that you're touching on there about um, when people do overdose or when people do things that are very... Um, destructive to other members of the community. Um, you don't talk about it in your book, but h how do you actually deal with those? I mean, do you have you had to ask people to leave the community, or have you do you have very clear boundaries about what is and what is not accepted? How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, we we have very clear. Uh, times of commitment and reevaluation, and I think that's really important. So, uh, we when someone comes into our community, we real we we reevaluate how that's going after a few months. We reevaluate how that's going after one year and two years. And in many monastic communities, you know, it took like six or seven years to become a full, uh, and yes. still does to take a uh, to become a full. Uh, member of that uh, community or society, and in a lot of ways, I think that's what we've lost in our church growth infatuation. Is we have the idea that to join the church, all you have to do is come up on Sunday morning. You know, <laughs> we yes. go. No, actually, this is about really discipleship and formation. 
And if you look at the megachurch model, one of the things that they, they've shown is that our uh, evangelism has created a discipleship that is like a mile long but an inch deep. You know, yes. we, we aren't cultivating disciples. We're, we're yes. making believers, and that's something really different. So, I, like, very practically how that works itself out, too, is that everybody knows what they're signing up for. So not, uh, when, when we call it our onion, and we say an onion has many different layers and sort of concentric circles, and it's not levels that you have to, like, kind of make your way up, but there, there are levels, and at each level there is a different expectation, there's a different commitment, and it's really helpful to honor that because it, it doesn't say if you're at an outer layer, you're any less a part of the onion, you know, or we kind of joke sometimes that, that if you get too far out, it gets a little flaky, you know, but, but really like at the, at the core is this movement into community um, and uh, and there are expectations of leaders of our community that are different from people that are volunteering or just coming by, you know, or staying right. for a few months. So it allows us, I think, to have different circles as Jesus did, where you have some folks that are fully committed and other folks that are exploring it, and other folks that still yet don't even share the faith at all, but they want to be a part of the momentum. Okay. Now that's really helpful. So, so do you formalize that? So do you, are they kind of, because I think you're talking about novices here, which is about growing into it and growing into community. Do, do you formalize it so people know exactly where they are in terms of that onion? Yeah, we absolutely do. And I think that's one thing that is a little counterintuitive, especially in post-modernity and stuff, is you're like, well, that, that feels a little formal. And I would say, yeah, it does, but the, the, the invitation is an open invitation to journey into the community. Um, but we, we really do want to decode that a little bit or else, like, and, and I mean, some of the things that people, people just don't know what they signed up for, and that, that's the most hurtful thing. And, and, and so, you know, it's, it's when um, a bunch of people are going to, they go, we're going to start a community, and they haven't even talked about whether or not they're going to have people sleep together if they're not married or have folks like, you know, um, drinking beer, smoking pot, you know, with people that are living in, in recovery from addictions. You know? <laughs> yes. so, so I think we can avoid a lot of pain if we have some of those conversations and hash out our essentials mm-hmm. beforehand. And that doesn't mean everything's got to be defined, you know. Uh, but we, we, we describe the structures of community like a trellis of a garden. If you don't have some kind of trellis, you know, for your tomatoes to grow up, then your tomatoes just rot on the ground. Yes. Um, but if you have too much structure, then it can suffocate community. And you can end up, like, not allowing the, the tomatoes to grow, but actually, you know, re- repressing them. So I think we've, we've got to figure out, each community's got to kind of figure out what is going to allow us to grow most healthily um, and, and the patterns that we're living into are different from the patterns of our culture so we can't kid ourselves by thinking oh if we just move in together with a bunch of you know counter, counter-cultural radicals we'll have community in fact a lot of times you have just the opposite of community yeah. yes yeah 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 oh that that's really helpful thank you um gosh all this kind of work that you're doing and the kind of challenge to it how do you I mean, it kind of requires a deep spirituality to live this way in such a challenging way so how do you sustain your spiritual life as a new monastic first of all we have a little fun together and i think a lot of us social justice minded people can um uh, can 
end up not being people that have much joy, you know, because yes. we, we deal with such serious issues, you know, <laughs> like labor, sex trafficking, you know, and all these things like they're, they're yeah. not things that keep you smiling. But I think if we, if yeah. we can't laugh, then the devil's already won. And, and, you know, something that most liberals and conservatives have in common is that they've lost their joy. And they, they become so obsessed and aggressive and self-righteous. And, and we've got to keep the humility to be able to laugh and, and take ourselves lightly. And so that, that's part of the fun of living in community for me. Uh, at, at one point, um, my housemates uh, hung, I was asleep on the top, and I sleep on the top bunk, and my housemates hung up uh, a life-size picture of George Bush above my bed. <laughs> and so the next morning, you know, I, I woke up, and they're all like people peeking in, you know, through the door, and I wake up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's laying on top of me, you know, um, but, but I, mean, I think it's like those kind of, uh, th- those pranks and those things that keep us, uh, you know, alive, and they, and, and, and I mean, that, that, that's, I think, really important, and Emma Goldman, uh, she said, if I can't dance, then it's not my revolution. Yeah. It's a beautiful line, and I, I think that's really true of a lot of the communities that we see going. Is they actually have such beautiful creativity, and they're not just protesting something, but they're celebrating something more beautiful than the patterns of the current economic and global system. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so so that that's really the invitation. Now, I mean, real concretely, we do a number of things. Like we we have morning prayer every morning together. We have a Sabbath day every week, and on the Sabbath day, all of our community activities rest and we ourselves rest and we don't answer the phone we don't use computers we don't use you know we don't do anything that that drains on us um and it's out of that sabbath that we work and i think even having a sabbath day a day of rest uh, I mean, for one it, it seems like a good idea to god <laughs> you know <laughs> that you got even rest i don't know why we would think we, we can get away with not resting but it is very countercultural because you end up going well you know how can i rest i mean the, the world's going on that's exactly the point yeah the world goes on and look at the world <laughs> you know like we we need to rest the land needs to rest the earth needs to rest um and and so out of that um we're we're able to 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 kind of sustain ourselves too, you know. And we go on retreats. We do other things. Um, and and part of what we do is we try to get out of our lives some of the things that suck life out of us, you know. Um, for instance, like television was a no-brainer. That that this is a way that many of us just fill the open space of our lives, you know. And 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 yes. so we as a community have gotten rid of television. And and at first, I mean, that was really, really difficult to us. You know, we went through withdrawal. It was like heroin, you know. Ah, I'm not going to make it without my shows. Um, but then you start to see that in that space, we're not just saying no to television. We're saying yes to a lot of other things. We're able to have meals. We have kids over to cook and paint. And you know, folks are doing playing games and doing things together in that space that was preoccupied with staring at a box, you know. And and now, like, kids flock to our house precisely because we don't watch television. You know, I mean, if they want to watch TV, they can go anywhere else on the block. Yeah. But they come to our place because we we – do different things, you know, they can paint on the walls, we plant gardens, we're able to make food in the kitchen, things like that, so yeah. so I think that that's one of the things we really have to do too. Mm. Great, so just thinking about what you're doing and, and living this way, which it seems to be about radically practicing presence, can, has your ex- kind of experience and views of God kind of changed? I'm aware that if you look at the lives of Francis, of Assisi and Teresa of Avila, they increasingly became mystics and contemplatives experiencing God in and through the world. Has your experience of God uh, changed through what you do? 
Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I mean, it, uh, if you know where I came from, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in East Tennessee in the South here, you know, in the Bible Belt. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was a very um, different world. And I grew up around people who looked like me and who thought like me. Um, <laughs> my dad was in Vietnam. And I, uh, the, the, like the, the love of country and the love of God were married, you know? <laughs> and so, so for me, um, my, my neighborhood and my own faith is continually, uh, evolved. And I, I, I think, you know, there's a, uh, an old adage that our politics are shaped by what we see out the window. Yeah. And I think in many ways our theology is shaped by that as well. Uh, so my, my theology, for instance, around peacemaking and nonviolence didn't just come from reading good Anabaptists and Mennonites, you know, but, but my mm. theology has come from seeing what Jesus did on the cross and putting that alongside what I see every day in my neighborhood. Yes. And, you know, we're, we have almost one child every day killing another kid in Philadelphia alone, just in Philadelphia, almost one homicide a day. And so we're trying to teach kids not to hurt each other, you know, and, and not mm -hmm. to hit each other back and not to shoot each other with guns. Um, mm -hmm. And I see that in Jesus, you know. But I also feel very deeply what Dr. Martin Luther King uh, felt when he said, I've told the kids in the ghettos that violence won't solve their problems. But then they ask me, why does our government use violence to try to bring the change that it wants to see in the world? Yes. And Dr. King said, I knew that I could no longer speak against the violence of the ghettos without also speaking against the violence of my government. Yes. So it's those macro issues that have really um, become married to, to my life in the neighborhood and my commitment to Jesus. You know, so I think those things kind of uh, they, they, they evolve uh, with, with that. You know, and even my understanding of how big God's graces and things like that has been, um, you know, it was easy for me as a kid growing up to just think, well, if people don't, um, if they don't receive Jesus as their personal Savior, then they're going to burn in hell, you know? Yes. I mean, somehow I could say that and, and not blink an eye, you know? Mm -hmm. But then you, you meet um, a 14-year-old girl and you hear that she was raped and someone told her that God must have had that happen for a reason. And she rejected God because, because of that. And you go, boy, these issues are, are a lot bigger. And we've got to be really careful about uh, uh, what we say and what we don't say, you know. And, 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 and so certainly God is bigger than my theology. But I also feel like um, part of what has created such wreckage in, 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 in Christendom has been really, really bad theology. Yes. It's gotten people killed. It's turned people off from God. And so the answer to bad theology is not no theology, but good theology. And to really think and read and study and pray to our, to our Lord to, to give us the eyes to see. You know, so that, that, that I think, has all um, been a part of my life in the neighborhood, you know, and many of my passions have grown out of that as well. Uh, you know, growing up, I heard about principalities and powers as if, you know, we were just kind of like um, 
dodge the the fiery darts of demons and the devil or something and and you know there, i think there there is an element of spiritual um battle without a doubt out there um and, and uh, evil forces and all those things but also you know i come to see in my neighborhood that uh, i mean just two years ago we had a big fire here in the city of philadelphia um, that was responsible because it was an abandoned factory that where the fire started. It burnt down our whole block, and then the city charged every family uh, a, a fine for having a hazardous property. And then when they demolished whatever remained of our houses, and my house was one of those that burnt down, they charged us the demolition costs. So these families that lost their homes ended up owing the city of Philadelphia like over eighty thousand dollars. That's a lot of euros, you know. <laughs> and you go, okay, that is also principalities and powers, you know, that, that keep people down. And that, like, and, and so how do we wrestle against those things as well? And the patterns of inequity, the patterns of racism, and all of those things in our cultures, there are, there's a spiritual dimension, and there's also a very uh, concrete and historic dimension to those two. Mm. Blimey. Yeah, yeah, and that's when it gets kind of interesting trying to kind of hold it together. It seems to me that you need to be quite a hopeful person to keep going in what you're doing. And kind of how do you hold that intention with all that's going on with global warming and the lack of ownership of the real issues in terms of ecological justice and the lack of national government to actually respond to the ecological uh, crisis that we're in, as well as profound social and economic injustice in the world? So how do you remain keeping being hopeful in a world that often doesn't seem very hope-making. This is what, what keeps me hopeful, is that change happens from the bottom up and not the top down. You know, I look at uh, conversations like the recent one in Copenhagen and other conversations happening around the world, and you, and you feel that those conversations are actually very important. And, and they're, they're signs, I think, of a new uh, awareness and sensitivity to these things. And I'm very hopeful, you know, that those conversations are happening. But really, at the end of the day, when I look at the life of Jesus, he wasn't just trying to bring... Uh, change from the bottom up, but he was very, he lived his life. Uh, I mean, from the top down, he's not trying to bring change, but he lived his life mm. amid people who have been marginalized and outcast. He's in the middle of interruptions and surprises, you know, people pulling on his coat and telling him to come here, and his, their son died. They ran out of wine at a wedding. You know, like, that's where he lives his life. And to me, that's what gives me the energy to continue to to be a part of those larger conversations, you know, and, and I, I just got an invitation to speak to the U.S. Congress this year, and I will, wow. you know, do that, like, and, and other invitations like that. I think we need to engage conversation on that level, but really, at the end of the day, what gets me really excited is when we go to the garden and a kid gets to pick a carrot out of the ground for the <laughs> first time, and it's like absolute magic, and they get <laughs> tears in their eyes, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is magic, you know, and you're like, no, that's God. And the God that created the universe made you. And it matters to God how we live in this world and, and whether or not we live in patterns that are destroying the creation. That matters to God. And that is my theology, is going on like, in, you know, uh, uh, hunting potatoes like treasures as you <laughs> dig them out of the ground with little kids. You know, like, so that, that I think, like, our, just, just the, the old adage, you know, that to, 
to think global and act local. I think sometimes we're in danger of not um, uh, having a life on the ground that with real relationships and real concrete examples of what it means to live differently. You know, I mean, even every time we flush our toilets off of dirty sink water, you know, we're thinking about those people in our world that don't have adequate water, you know. So even the little things that we do, um, trying to run cars off of waste vegetable oil and all those things, like those aren't necessarily solutions for the entire world at this point, but they are ways that we make ourselves sensitive to the fact that our world is deeply suffering from its current patterns and we need a new imagination. You know, we need to be more Mm. creative with how we live. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, and thinking about that being creative, how we live, uh, um, some people, I think, really struggle with the fact that we're increasingly in a post-secular and post-Christian world, particularly, I think, in in the kind of Europe's probably more post-secular than I think even uh, the United States is. But it seems to me that many kind of new monastic communities are, are aware that they need to engage with contemporary culture, with people who rarely have any understanding of the Christian faith, other than that group of people who seem to be very judgmental and very angry. So lots of groups seem to be experiencing and playing with rules and rhythms of life to try and open up this idea about how should, you know, the question about how should we live in but not of contemporary culture to kind of open up the Christian faith in how we live in the everyday. Is that something that, that you would affirm or, or do you think this is kind of going off on the wrong track? Well, it's, it's a very interesting thing because I, I think on, on the one hand, uh, the, there is a, a real curiosity at this moment from people who see Christianity reshaping itself and, and, and don't at all identify as Christian. You know, um, mm. uh, I recently was uh, got a call from the uh, folks at Esquire magazine, um, which is a men's magazine uh, that I, I don't know if you have it over there, but yeah. it's kind of like, wow, this is different. You know, I don't, I don't really read this magazine much, but they were, they were asking great questions. And they, and the, one of the editors said, I want people to see the kind of Christianity that you all espouse. Because if I had seen it, I might not have left the church. Mm. Now, that is a powerful statement, you know? Mm. And I think that there's an opportunity for those uh, that might identify as new monastics or, or that are redefining their faith or, or even that rejected the faith that are going, maybe I'm not going to give up on Jesus because of Christians. You know, and that's exactly the kind of article that I ended up writing for Esquire, because they said, will you, um, will you write an apostolic letter addressed to non-Christians? <laughs> and I thought, how fantastic, you know? So I, I wrote a letter to my, non- <laughs> to, to my uh, uh, non-Christian, unbelieving, used-to-be-believing, or, or sort-of-believing friends, you know? And, and part of it began with confession, saying... I'm sorry for the embarrassing things that we Christians have done in the name of God. And the fact that very often the largest obstacle to God has been Christians. And, 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 uh, uh, but then I think what, what I also see in Jesus is this incredible invitation to collaborate with others uh, that are doing the same work that we believe in and are, are aimed at the same goal. You know, so... Um, at one point, the disciples come up to Jesus, and they go, hey, there's a guy down the street that's doing all kinds of miracles and prophecies and stuff, but he's not one of us. Should we tell him to shut up? <laughs> and Jesus is basically like, no! Are you crazy? If he's not against us, he's for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that is part of what I think we Christians, and, and so many times can be so sectarian to go, well, if they don't believe my uh, statement of faith, then we really can't work together. 
Mm-hmm. And Jesus, I think, would really, really challenge that. And it's stories like the Good Samaritan, you know, where the religious folks pass by the person in the ditch, and the Samaritan who didn't believe all the right stuff. And Jews didn't even pass through Samaria or didn't even eat with Samaritans, you know? Like, the Samaritan does what is right, takes care of his neighbor, and Jesus celebrates that as a heroic act. And, and, and so for, for us, I think we got to go, who are those people that we can work together with, you know? Um, and, 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 you know, in my neighborhood, there are Muslim friends that are working to try to decrease the gun trafficking on our block. And I'm sure as heck going to be working with them. I would be stupid not to, you know, and there's people yes. that are working towards environmental justice and, mm. you know, to end uh, the, the sort of patterns that we see in the world. And as we look at social movements throughout history, um, Christians have often been in the forefront of, of a lot of these things, but we've been really good at collaborating with others, you know, mm. uh, and that's what's brought bra- broad sweeping change has is, is been, you know, things like the civil rights movement in this country and the abolition movement over there and so many other movements have been people of faith and conscience working together, even though we might not agree on the fine points of theology. Uh, and, you know, and in closing, like, I, I would say that, mm. It's also our responsibility to call out the people who do claim to be of our own faith tradition um, and are are speaking and living out things that um, uh, uh, that clash with what that is, you know. Uh, mm. because, and it's like for that reason that Dr. Martin Luther King, while he was in jail in Birmingham, wrote the clergy. And he, and he said, uh, the letter from the Birmingham jail was addressed to clergy, and it said, I expect more of you. I might not expect everybody in our society to be able to love each other across race, but I should at least be able to expect it from the leaders of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's where we do have some, and Jesus had harsh words, but they weren't for wounded people on the, on the margins and in the ditches. Like his harsh words, like brood of vipers. <laughs> You know, that was for the religious elite, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees who were looking down on everybody else and were self-righteous, were claiming to be holy and set apart, but were not living into the responsibility of what it meant to love God and love their neighbor with all that they are. And that's why, you know, Jesus says things like, to the religious elite, he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. <laughs> and we wonder what got him killed, you know? So I, I think on the one hand, we have this deep, deep invitation to those on the outside of our faith to come and join the work and let us join the work that you're doing. And on the same line, we also have a word for those that are claiming to be in the inner circle and are not um, uh, living into the responsibility of what it really means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because what becomes at, at stake is the very reputation of our faith. When folks hold signs that say, God hates fags, mm-hmm. it's very important that we say, no, that's not the God that I know. You know? And, and actually, when, when, you know, what became so clear to me when I was in Iraq was that what was it at, at stake in Iraq uh, when that mistake was happening uh, of the bombing of Baghdad in the war there was not just the reputation of the United States and of Britain, but what was at stake was the reputation of Christianity because so many people so 
because of, of the news and because of their associations, had so married America and Christianity that they couldn't separate them. And that should break our hearts, you know. So, so that's part of why I went to Iraq and why I, why I will be going back to Iraq in January is to try to give witness to uh, a, a God that is truly a Prince of Peace and a God who loves even to the point of dying for those who, who hurt us. Hmm. Shane, that's incredible. Thank you. This has been an incredible time. Thank you for all your wisdom and thank you for your work. What you do is an inspiration to many of us. So uh, thank you so much for for your time. Um, This will go out and people in the UK will hear this and further afield. So thank you um, for what you're contributing, not only to the church, but inspire many of us to keep going. It's beautiful to be with you and be a part of this conversation. We'll we'll keep it going and pray that, uh, that God gives much fruit. Great. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for your time. All right, brother. See you. Bye-bye.